0: Or afterward, then you could, you could adjust on the back end. All right. I always tell people that if they're unsure of whether or not the devil exists, just work in AV for a church. If you haven't dismissed your kids already for children's ministry, you're welcome to do so now. And just as a reminder, uh, the sermon outlines are now available on our website, so you can go to SovGrace.org. Uh, SovGraceKC.org, click on sermons, and you'll find the outline to today's message already presented there, the title of this particular message being Love uh, Further Up and Further In. So today we're closing out our series on 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to thank you for your many encouraging comments about this series and all the positive feedback I received, and I just pray that God will use this time in 1 Corinthians 13 to make us a more loving church with every confidence that if we simply commit as individuals to be more loving human beings, that God is going to richly bless our community and also our impact in the greater community. Now, the fundamental thing I see when speaking about love, in so far in particular as 1 Corinthians 13 goes, is that when Paul talks about love, he also talks about eternity. It seems to me that for Paul, these two themes are intertwined. Love, heaven, love, heaven. Uh, commentators all said something about this as they looked at 1 Corinthians 13, and the kind of, you know, div uh, fancy-schmancy theological phrase that you'd see over and over again in the commentaries is, there is an undeniably eschatological theme that runs throughout the book of first or the chapter of first Corinthians 13, something like that. Meaning, when Paul tries to talk about love, he winds up talking about heaven. And when Paul tries to talk about heaven, he winds up talking about love. The two things are fundamentally intertwined so far as he goes. And that's actually, I think, pretty consistent throughout the scriptures. And you know what? I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that those two things run hand in hand. And we saw a little bit of that last week when we considered verses Eight through 12 essentially last week of First Corinthians 13 and today we're going to primarily focus on verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. But this ability to see heaven clearly and know like yep that's real and it's really good connects in some way or another to our capacity to love others well. I was reminded this week of an old series an old made-for-TV series called Roots. And this was quite the deal when I was a kid. And people, like, this was what people watched at home. Um, I don't suppose, like, in Mississippi it was that popular. But uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line, it was quite popular. And uh, there was this character in the series. He's like a third-generation descendant of the original character of the series. Long story. Anyway, he is separated from his... His name is George, Chicken George. And he is separated from his wife for 20 years and after 20 years of not seeing her he's reunited and he greets his family greets her and they're lying in bed that night and she is crying and he says woman woman why are you crying and she said the last time you saw me i was young and beautiful And now I have wrinkles and I'm old and I don't know if you'll love me anymore. And he says, woman, when I look at you, I don't look at you with my eyes. I look at you with my heart. Come on now, come on now. I should be soaked by your tears after that story. That's so beautiful. We all want to be loved that way. We all, we all need to be loved that way. But I would submit to you that like he's only about half right, that love does come from seeing the thing you can't see. But really, the love comes not from seeing the thing you can't see in another person, but love comes from seeing the thing you can't see in the gospel. Love comes from seeing this invisible reality, which is more real than this one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that this world is like a reflection of the real thing. As C.S. Lewis wrestled with... You're going to hear a lot about C.S. Lewis today because I don't know of anyone who's informed me more on the subject of love and the subject of heaven. As C.S. Lewis attempts to describe heaven in The Last Battle, the Narnia book, he describes the idea of walking through a room and looking in a mirror and the mirror is pointed to a window, and out the window is a beautiful bay, a beautiful whatever. He talks about this idea of seeing the reflection of eternity in today. It's It's like looking out a window, but not directly. It's like looking at a mirror pointed at the window. And So this notion of being able to see that which is unseen, this seems to be key to living a loving life not as chicken george says at roots to see the beautiful unseen thing in another person but to see the beautiful unseen reality which is in fact more real than this world in which god's love is transparently clearly obviously the overwhelmingly most important thing that is so this connection between love and heaven seems to be worth discussing uh, and, and worth not just discussing, but worth like, leaving you with as we conclude this series in 1 Corinthians 13. And this seems to be a consistent thing throughout all of our love heroes in the scriptures, especially Jesus. That wherever someone is seen to be especially loving, they also seem to have an especially clear view and motivation toward heaven and eternity. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is staying with two of his closest friends, sisters named Mary and Martha. And if you read this story carefully, some of the ways that we think of the story are quickly dismantled. This isn't three people in a room. This isn't Martha running around serving while Mary sits alone in the living room at Jesus' feet. Nothing so awkward as that. The text actually says, this is Luke 10, the text actually says that Jesus was teaching. Jesus routinely used their home as an operational base for his ministry. So it's not just Jesus and Mary in a room, Jesus sitting at his feet. Jesus is teaching a group of people. The house is full. Wherever Jesus is, the house is always full. And obviously, this would be quite weird, if Martha is running around frantic, uh, troubled with much serving, as the text says, and, and it's only three people right? She's freaking out about the hospitality element because there's a bunch of people in her house, and she's trying to make sure that all of them are taken care of, and all of them are full fed. And in verse 40, it says that while Jesus was teaching, I need you to picture this, while Jesus was teaching, Martha interrupts him and says, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. So just think of the equivalent. Like we're going to have a, a potluck on October 30th. So suppose while I'm preaching, um, someone comes up and says, can you tell Shirley to unplug? She's hogging all the outlets with her pot, with, with, with her uh, crock pot. You know, can you tell her food's going to be warm? Tell her to unplug her. You know, like this, like settling a dispute about the meal in the middle of the teaching. This is what Martha is doing. She's kind of lost herself at this point. She's, she's interrupting Jesus as he's teaching And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, whenever God speaks, you can be sure that there are layers and layers of meaning in what he says, because an eternal being just formed a sentence. And you would imagine, I think, that if an eternal being with all the time in the world to plan the sentence, says something, there's probably a lot of meaning in everything he says. For instance, Jesus uses the word portion. You're troubled with many things, Martha, but Mary has chosen the better portion. And he's really communicating to her as he did to the disciples in John John four, there's another meal happening right now, right? There's a meal happening that you can't prepare, that you can only consume, and that one's happening in the living room where I am sitting, instructing, and teaching. But I want us to lock in on this phrase. She has chosen something, it's better, and it won't be taken away from her. This idea of something being taken away is key to Jesus's system of values. He's trying, as he walks throughout his earthly ministry, trying to teach people not only to follow him, but how to make good decisions. And his decision-making, his heuristic of how to figure things out is as follows. Does it last forever? That's, That's almost number one for him. Does it last forever? Because as he is saying to Martha, you're you're busy, concerned about things that do not last forever. But that which Mary has chosen does last forever. Think about it this way. Everything Martha is doing is good. It's all necessary, but it can all be taken away from her. The physical health she needs to run this household. Well, that will go away someday. The, 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 the entrepreneurial, I think that they were entrepreneurs, I think they were women of means. The entrepreneurial skill necessary to acquire the money to pay for the food, that could be taken away. The economy could go upside down. In a few short years, in their lives, there would be a famine in their land, and there would be no food to put before Jesus and those that he was teaching so that even if Martha had money, and even if she did have health, she wouldn't be able to buy food. So everything that Martha is doing is fragile. None of it can last. None of it will last. And isn't it the case that most of us, by, by the amount of worry that we invest in different things, isn't it the case that most of us, by the energy we expend, suggests that the things that are the most important because we worry about them and think about them and obsess on them and plan on them and so on, are the things that don't last. So Jesus' whole heuristic of value, like, I want to teach you how to make good decisions. He's like, does it last forever? And so he tells Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen something that will last forever. You have not. There's another layer beneath that. The very version of Jesus that Martha is dealing with, a version's not probably the right word, that, that version is going away. She is concerned with serving a Jesus who needs to eat and sleep and needs a place to stay. That will be taken from her, right? Even the opportunity to serve in the way she is serving now, that will be taken away from her. Meanwhile, Mary has done what? She has invested herself in the word of Jesus, And if she's sick, the word remains. And if the economy turns upside down, the word remains. And if there's a famine, the word remains. And if Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father so you can no longer make his bed and feed him, the word remains. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word remains forever. And so what he's telling Martha is, Mary has chosen the better thing, because the thing lasts forever. This is a key way of assigning and deciding value in a functional kind of way, according to the Bible. Does it last? Now, that was all introduction for the text that we conclude our series with, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which simply says this. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Do you see the correlation between what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 13, and what Jesus taught Martha? What's the correlation? Why are these two things connected? In both instances, the, the reason that the thing is meaningful and valuable is that it lasts. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He's looking beyond this lifetime into the next one, and he's asking, what will be there? Let me live here for what will be there, for what will last over the long haul. He's saying that love will endure. Last week, we talked about this idea of a love apocalypse that's in the text, just meaning, apocalypse just meaning, the thing that is revealed, seen clearly. And there are four kind of elements to it, Paul mentions in verses eight through 12. the partial giving away to the perfect, the immature giving way to the mature, the dim reflection giving way to the glaring reality, and the partial knowledge giving way to the full knowledge. And when all of the clouds clear, when all of the fog of this life clears, and you see what actually is, Paul says in verse 13, what will actually be is love. These people were making decisions with a fully informed imagination, fully informed faith over what will come after this life. And I want to show you today why thinking of, delighting in, and leaning into heaven is the key to being a more loving person. And I'm only going to cover two of the many possible reasons why this is the case. Because what we see time and time again is when someone has a biblical, rich faith in heaven, they are also patient and kind and generous and forgiving. Paul was absolutely, he gets undersold in his love. He, he's, we think highly of Paul. We don't think highly enough of his love. Paul was an exceptionally Loving man. There are many people who like to talk about virtues, who like to virtue signal without paying any of the price for actual virtue. So beware of those who talk much of love. But Paul, man, he he talked much of love, but he paid the price for love. Even in his dealings with this church, Paul is exemplifying his call to endure with people who are hard to endure with. Paul is this very loving person and I don't know of anyone else except for Jesus in the New Testament who, well probably John, who who clearly leans into heaven like Paul does. At the end of his life he's simultaneously thinking about coats and books and highly practical things and heaven is just as real to him as those things. And he says to Timothy in that same area of, of The chapter in in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So maybe we summarize the entire point of this message by simply saying those who love his appearing seem to be the ones who love best here. Those who most love his appearing seem to be the ones who love the best here. And of course, Jesus is another example of this. He's the example of this. He was fully informed in a uniquely way that none of us could say, not even Paul, he knew exactly what heaven was like because he made it. And everything about his conversations with the world were always motivated in this sense of, Hey, would you stop pursuing the things that don't last and start pursuing the things that do? The rich young fool, the rich fool who, who dies uh, after conceiving of this great savings plan, he, you know, he had the, the massive 401k, and he, he was going to die before he could spend any of it. Uh, Jesus says of him, he didn't, he didn't save up money bags in heaven. It's in, in Luke 6, he says, He says, don't store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. That doesn't last. But store up your treasures in heaven where moths don't destroy and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. His his logic is simply, live for thee forever. Jesus is unquestionably future-oriented, eternally oriented. There's this phrase again from Lewis called chronological snobbery. And Lewis did not become a Christian for quite some time because of his chronological snobbery. And it was a phrase that Owen Barfield, one of his friends, was also a highly influential philosopher, and uh, Tolkien kind of coined with Lewis because Lewis was like interested in Christianity, but he kept saying, "But what use is a two-thousand-year-old idea to me here?" in modern times. And they would tell him, you're a chronological snob. You only value the stuff that's present. You don't, your nose is always stuck up to the ancients and so on and so forth. And Lewis would of course, eventually repent of this, become saved and also talk a great deal about chronological snobbery. But you know, there's a good kind of chronological, not all snobbery is bad, by the way. Uh, There's a good kind of chronological snobbery. And it's the kind Jesus and Paul had. And it's like they had no respect for a life dedicated to this life alone. In the, in the way that, in the way that uh, Lewis looked down on the ancients, Paul, Jesus, godly men who have changed the world for thousands of years, They look down on those who don't look up and forward and see heaven as the point, as the plan, as the destination, as the outcome of our faith, which we saw this morning in Romans 8. So there's this healthy chronological snobbery that winds up making people loving. Why is that? Here's two, two reasons. One would simply be One feature of heaven is unlimited time and unlimited treasure. One feature of heaven is unlimited time and unlimited treasure. So let's just think about this from a logical perspective. We know that scarcity tends to promote conditions that are antithetical to love. We know that scarcity tends to promote conditions which are antithetical to love. And we've seen all of that in those Black Friday shopping videos. Is what's going on there? It's obviously greed, but it's it's limited time and limited resources. There's only so many of those, you know, hundred dollar 50, 50 inch TVs left, you know, and and they're only available for a certain amount of time. And there's this kind of feeding frenzy that takes place in this scarcity mindset. This is why, whether it's a conspiracy or just just straight up demonic, this notion of of a fomenting a scarcity mindset in a populace is so damaging. Because you're stirring up all sorts of the worst instincts that humans have. And so, like, we know that a scarcity concept is antithetical to a loving life, but what about a world in which there is no scarcity, in which there is plenty of everything, including plenty of time? What if God? through his spirit, indwelt a group of people for thousands of years who looked at life not on a 90-year continuum, but on a 9 million-year continuum. And so that scarcity in the moment was just scarcity for the moment and not the outcome of how our lives will go. A scarcity of time, scarcity of treasure, all of that is just momentary. That's what you see if you look at the world through your eyes. But if you look at the world through the heart of faith, you see that the truth is is that for the Christian, we will all have more than enough of everything forever. And such a perspective certainly promotes love. As we said last week, when you are freed from the need to jam all of the joy, all of the happiness into the 80 years you get, 90 years you get, whatever, And you're allowed to just defer self-gratification with total confidence, as Paul had in 2 Timothy 4, that you know who you've trusted to. And and henceforth, there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness, and he will deliver everything and more. And that you will live in a world in which time and treasure are hyper-abundant. Does that make you more loving? Is that why we see this connection between these people who really, really, really believed in heaven and who were super loving. Because they just knew like that scarcity is itself so temporary, as we read in our call to worship text, that the suffering of this present age is not worth comparing to the eternal glory that waits for us. Is that one reason? Reversing it is one of the reasons why the Corinthians were so bad at love that they were bad about heaven. They didn't get it. Well, we have an answer to that. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is sort of doing what I would call reverse triage. So if you're a, a doctor uh, and you've got 10 people with 10 problems, it's, it behooves you to deal with the ones that are the worst first and, and handle those first and then work your way down. In in Rhetoric and also just dealing with people, sometimes it's better to do it the other way. And you deal with the lesser stuff first, and then you get, you, you kind of advance throughout. And then at the end, you deal with the issue. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is not the end of Paul's letter, the real end, content wise, really is 1 Corinthians 15, though it does go to 16. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul handles the problems of this church, and I think he handles them from least to worst. All of the problems are serious, but he seems to be advancing forward into the worst and worst and worst and worst. So at first he's dealing with the factions among them because some people are bragging about having this teacher and some people are bragging about having that teacher. And then he handles you know, relatively lesser things. He gets to dealing with their, their permissiveness over this sexually immoral brother who continues to fellowship with them, though openly sexually immoral. And then he goes on to sort of the Black Friday version of, of uh, communion that they're having where they're, they're throwing elbows uh, to get to the table um, and he's dealing with these in order, and then he gets to love in 13, and 13 you think, well, that's it right? Love's the greatest. So obviously love, the lack of love might be their, must be their biggest problem. It appears that there's a problem behind that problem. And that is found in 1 Corinthians 15:12, where Paul says, "Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So a pretty nasty little heresy had entered this church. And that heresy was essentially the dismantling of the biblical notion of heaven. They stopped believing in eternal reward in any meaningful way. And what did this error produce? Well, I think it's what produced all of the lack of love. They begin to live in Black Friday mode every day, interacting with one another as, well, if he's getting credit, then I'm not getting credit. If they're getting attention, then I'm not getting attention. If they're doing well, then I'm not doing well. Jealousy and envy were abounding. We see that. It's just reflected as how Paul instructs them to love. There's a scarcity mindset that's overtaken them. And where did this scarcity mindset come from? They stopped believing in eternal joy with endless time and endless treasure. And Paul basically says as much in verse 32 of chapter 15. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That's Black Friday mode. Take, 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 take. Because tomorrow we're dead and there is no more. So jam this life full, as much joy as possible, because this is the one trip around the sun we get. So there really does seem to be this high view of heaven This high view of love connected and a low view of heaven and a low commitment to love connected in the book itself. But there's way more than that. Look back at our verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We'll read it one more time. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Will there really be faith and hope in heaven? Read the verse again. So now faith, hope, and love abide. And we can see throughout the whole text, that Paul, uh, throughout the whole chapter, Paul really is talking about eternity. He's talking about the end of all things. As the commentators say, there is an eschatological tone to the whole thing. So now he says in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, or remain. It's probably the better translation, remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, just the most simple reading of that verse suggests, wait a minute, there are going to be faith and hope in heaven? There are two options available as you figure that out. The one is to say that in this one place, Paul isn't talking about heaven. It's possible. Or the other is to say, yes, there will be faith and hope in heaven. And I, honestly, I don't know which one Paul meant, and, and I think it's very difficult to know which one Paul meant, but I'm going to tell you that the idea that faith and hope exist in heaven is biblical, and in fact, for me, makes heaven all the more attractive. So let me explain how faith and hope can be potentially in heaven and why that makes me happy. First of all, there is never going to be a point in your existence on this earth or in eternity in which trusting God is not the main thing you do. Some people, the flesh creeps into our view of heaven and contaminates it, and we wind up imagining heaven to be a place where you and God are equal, and you all just clearly both know what's going on, but no... The word says, who can know the mind of the Lord? And this will be true in heaven as well. You will not suddenly become God's intellectual equal. You will always be a person and he will always be the infinite God of the universe. So the truth is, is that you're never going to be in a moment of existence in which trusting God is not necessary. But imagine living in a world where you are still responsible for trusting God because he is just big and awesome. Imagine living in a world where suspense and surprise are always there. But sin is not. And suffering is not. One commentator deals with it this way. Where God is the living God, his presence continues always to invite trust. And confidence as well as forward-looking hope in the living ever-going God who does new things even in the perfection of heaven so how can it be that faith and hope exist in heaven well I think our view of faith and hope is so entangled with sin that we have trouble understanding faith and hope in a highly pure sense But I think if you want to argue that Paul is saying that these things will continue in heaven, I think what you simply say is is that we are going to live in a world with God forever in which he constantly surprises us because he's God and we're still people. And yes, we'll be wiser and we'll see things more clearly, but there will always be new things happening. Someone else wrote, the life of the age to come will rest on faith as completely as does the Christian life now." That's a, that's a bold statement. The life of the age to come will rest on faith as completely as does the Christian life now. Similarly, unless we conceive as hev- of heaven as a closed or static state, the openness of the heavenly life towards the future maintains the relevance of hope. Meaning, it's, it's an open world. It, it, it has a day after another day after another day and new things happen. And so trusting God with the new things, trusting God with his explanation of old things, having hope over what will become of the next day and the next day and the next day. Once, as, as usual, once again, C.S. Lewis manages to explain it better than all of the theologians, and he does it while also telling good fiction. In the last battle he writes this. And this this is what you need to think of about heaven and why faith and hope might be really, real important, really, really important. And as he spoke, Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion. This This is them entering into heaven. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, this the end of the story and for us this is the end of the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover on the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story. Which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If that becomes real, if you see that in your heart, I guarantee you people will say, How did so and so become so loving and patient and generous? and quick to forgive and hopeful why are they not envious and why they have things why don't they boast in those things and why don't they why don't they insist on their own way because this heart is so big heaven's heaven's stretching out this heart it's so big and it's so confident the day is coming when there will be unlimited time and unlimited treasure and day after day of adventure and reason after reason to joyfully accept, trust God. And maybe even in those moments of trusting God, we'll think about all the times we struggle to trust God and think about how free it feels to trust God. In Romans 8, the passage I read, the call to worship, he says the whole earth is groaning. For this day when the sons of God are redeemed. he says it's under bondage, looking forward to the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. The freedom of the glory of the sons of God. This future we're living for is full of the most marvelous kind of freedom. And it allows you to live whatever, however long you've got here. With a level of generosity and fearlessness and risk-taking. forgiveness and i don't know how you get that without this connection that we see with all of these great loving men who also happen to be leaning in very strongly into heaven and one of many explanations for why that is so is that this idea of limitless post-scarcity abundance becomes real to us And sacrifice now just feels like investment. And all of these really great, loving people who actually did lay down their lives for others, they would always be careful to say, I'm not making a sacrifice. I'm making an investment. I'm just planting a seed, and this seed's going to bloom forever and ever and ever with eternal joy. That's what Jesus wanted us to do. Well, Let's talk about a second reason. For why heaven, a high view of heaven, makes us better at loving. Not only do we see kind of this unlimited time and treasure idea, but the second idea is this incomprehensible transformation. What do I mean by that? There seems to be this connection where we see, when we see that a fundamental promise of heaven is that we will all be healed, We will all be changed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He's having to teach these people these things. They don't don't know or they've forgotten. He says, we will not all be asleep. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. When you believe in deep transformation as a part of our heavenly future, well, that affects the way you love people. I remember first reading one of the more serious theological books that i read when I was young, young, I was 18, and I read Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, which to this day would, you know, people would say is one of the better books on what they call the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. And I'm reading this book and at the end he starts talking about glorification and I don't know what that is. And I'm reading it and thinking, is he just talking about glorifying God? Like, I don't, I don't know what that word means the word glorification, but he's talking about it, like to me, about me, that I'm gonna be glorified. And I thought, well, this is, maybe this guy's a heretic. I didn't know who was a heretic, who doesn't, you know, who wasn't. And so I thought, well, maybe this guy's a heretic. I mean, I've gotten all the way through the book and it seems really great, but now he's telling me that I'm gonna be glorified. It's like, what is this about? I know that's not true, is it? It's like, then he adds scripture references, including Romans 8, 29 through 30. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Well, what does it mean to be? What is God doing? Why is is God glorifying me? What does that even mean? What it means is that the day is coming in the resurrection, and the return of Christ, in which every person in this room will receive a new body Explicitly prepared for their eternal destination, one prepared for eternal suffering and one prepared for eternal ecstasy. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will receive a body which is perfectly equipped to enjoy God and all of his lavish blessings forever and ever and Paul, again, he has to tell the Corinthians this stuff. And in chapter 15, in verse 42, it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Well, how does believing that make us more loving? How does believing that make us more loving? Well, let me ask you a question. What kind of person is for you the hardest kind of person to be around? Just soak that in for a second. What kind of person is for you the hardest kind of person to be around? Like people have sins and they have, they have blind spots. And some of those blind spots are more annoying to some people than to other people. So what kind of person is for you the hardest kind of person to be around? what kind of person tests your patience what kind of person feels hard to love i mean one kind of person that most christians really struggle to love is the kind of person who would not be grateful for us sharing the gospel to them with them like we're like i don't i'm not going to share the gospel with you because you'll be mean to me like i'm not going to sacrifice myself i'm not going to sacrifice 10 minutes of discomfort reputation and so forth to share the gospel with you because because you would just be mean to me or you may be mean to me. So we have trouble loving people. We have trouble loving people that aren't perfect. But here's the thing. If they make it to heaven, they will be glorious. I remember as a pastor walking with someone who seemed to have not only some sin, but also some just dispositional issues that were probably not going to get resolved, no matter how much I invested. I remember being very frustrated by that because I was not short on commitment or desire to help this person grow and transform, but I just got to this point after a year or so of meeting regularly with them, and I realized, oh, there's some stuff going on here that is not, that seems intractable. And I remember I felt like the Lord said to me, uh, John 17, which I'll read part of for communion. Jesus says, I've delivered all that you've given to me. I've, I've, I've delivered them. I've handed them to you. I've gotten them to you. I remember the Lord showing me a picture of this person that I was struggling to be hopeful for and love. And it was a picture of walking this person, of, of joining this person in heaven and seeing them for the first time free of these dispositional chains that were weighing them down, far more than it was annoying me, it was making their life hard. Have you seen the YouTube videos where someone who was deaf suddenly has, through some technological or surgical thing, suddenly the capacity to hear? Or someone who was blind suddenly with the capacity to see? Friends, look around right now in this room and you will see people who will undergo a transformation that will bring tears of joy to even the most calloused heart, we are all headed toward an incomprehensibly glorious transformation. All sin, all sickness, all dispositional infirmities, issues like attention span. Some of you are quite annoyingly uh, picky eaters. All of it w- w- will be free And see, I don't think Paul walks with the Corinthians unless he believes what he wrote in chapter 15. We will all be changed. We will all be healed. And once again, Lewis, in another book, The Weight of Glory, says it quite well. He says, it may be possible, think about this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. He's like, it's possible that you could get super fascinated with your glorification and that that might be unhealthy. But then he says, it is hardly possible to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. Might be possible for me to get super fascinated with my glorification. I have not reached that point, by the way. It's hard for me to think of these things as it is, I'm sure, for you. Might be possible. Definitely not possible for me as I walk with brothers and sisters in local church community to think early and often about how one day they will be transformed and they will be glorified. They will be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. He says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken He says this, you probably heard this part. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption, such as you meet now, if you met now only in a nightmare. And then he says all day long, We are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. And maybe you've seen the quote that comes after this. says, there are no ordinary people. We are all headed to some magnitude of glory or horror that you can't imagine right now. And this idea of we are all in one way, in some degree, all day long, helping each other toward one of those two destinations. If you believe that God transforms people and you believe that God is transforming people and you believe that maybe your job is to just in some way or another, by one degree or another, help that person move toward this glorious day, this glorious day of healing, this glorious day of freedom from all of the various chains that are weighing them down now, this glorious day of pure deliverance, Say that's what love is. That's what love is. Love is helping one another along, so that we can watch each other dance in unparalleled freedom and glory when we reach the other side. And this is all actually summarized in Paul's whole notion in First Corinthians 14. So, if you have your Bibles, I know we don't have slides today, but if you have your Bibles, we'll close at this. Look at look at chapter 14 with me just quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul at 13 concludes with this elevated picture of love. Love is king because the king is love. Love lasts forever. And verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, we do not have time to get into the subject of tongues and prophecy. We would definitely need slides for that. So I opened this can with a bit of hesitancy, and I'm relying on you to, to see the forest from the trees here. We don't have time to get into the trees of prophecy and tongues. What we have time for is the forest, which is the decision-making mechanism that Paul is using to decide what is better than the, what, what is better, what's best. Okay, are you with me? Let's forget about tongues, prophecies. You can ask me questions later. Uh, If you'd like to have lunch with me afterward, we're going to have sandwiches. We can talk about that then. But the thing Paul is using to decide that one is better than the other, well, that works across all circumstances, across all subjects, and all time. It's a completely portable decision-making tool. And that is what? How does he decide that prophecy is better than tongues? How does he decide that one action is better than another action, especially when both of those actions are spiritual? How does he decide that prophecy is better than tongues? Well, for Paul, it's simple. The one that builds up other people is better than the one that builds up you. Now, you can apply that to how you spend your time The jobs you choose, how you dress, everything. You can apply this to everything. What makes one choice better than another choice? The one that builds up other people is better than the one that builds up me. And let's be clear what build up means. Build up means getting one step closer to this glory that Lewis describes. Building up means helping one person, helping other people go From one degree of glory to the next until they reach this moment of total freedom, glorification, redemption in the new heavens and the new earth. And you could use the word prophecy. You could replace the word prophecy in tongues between any two options you're considering. It's like, should I stay late for lunch or watch the Chiefs game? Which one builds people up? and I could, I, I could pick on every single one of you in some issue right now and just make you so uncomfortable, but I won't do that. Paul is essentially saying in 14 that if you want to know, because he's described love, he's told you love is awesome, it's permanent, it's eternal, it's valuable, and he's described it to some extent, and now he's left us with this final, extraordinarily helpful tool. It's like, how would you know if you are actually loving others? Are they being built up? Now, He uses three words in verse three, if you still have your Bibles open, you can look at this real quickly in 14.3, upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And this is simply doing the work that Lewis is describing of helping one another toward that final destination, helping a person move toward their final transformation. And Paul summarized that as his goal in life was to help others move there. And one of the things we should note is that Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation does not feel like that if you think that you should not be transforming anymore. So, for instance, if you are if you are not interested in further transformation, then someone loving you and upbuilding and encouraging and consoling it's going to feel very displacing and unhelpful. And that's not them; that's you. You don't want to be transformed any further. You want to stay where you are. But for the person who is leaning into eternity. Say, I'm leaning into eternity, and I really want to be more like Jesus, and you're leaning into eternity, and you really want to help me be more like Jesus. My goodness, the kinds of things we can accomplish together. The power of biblical community at that level. Paul would summarize, like, that's it. That's what I'm about. I've become all things to all people, if by some means I might win some. And his whole thing, his whole loving action, was to say, how can I help other people be delivered into the shores of this heavenly country, this world of love? That's, in my opinion, there's nothing more loving than that, is to help others walk into this world of love. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into communion. Oh, Father God, please fill us with faith and help us to taste heaven. Help us to smell heaven, to feel as if it is really just right around the corner. And that all the sufferings that we might encounter in this world, even the sufferings we choose in the form of sacrifice, all of the sufferings in this world are not worthy of introducing or being introduced into the conversation about all those eternal glories. Eternity, glory, the joy awaiting us far outweighs anything that we would experience here as a consequence of our love. Any hardship we would experience as a consequence of our love in this life is nothing compared to the joys that wait before us. God, please fill our hearts with faith and let let us learn to look at the world Not through our visible eyes, but through the eyes of faith, heart of faith. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things we didn't talk about with heaven, I waited for communion to discuss, is.